For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Welcome back, everyone. Our chant tonight will be the Ehe Koso Hotsuganmon. So I will put those words on the screen. Ehe koso hotsu ganmo We vow together with all beings from this life on throughout numerous lifetimes not to fail to hear the true Dharma. Hearing this, we will not be skeptical and will not be without faith. Directly upon encountering the true Dharma, we will abandon mundane affairs and uphold and maintain the Buddha Dharma. And finally, together with the great earth and all animate beings, we will accomplish the way. Although our previous evil karma has greatly accumulated, producing causes and conditions that obstruct the way, may the Buddhas and ancestors who have attained the Buddha way be compassionate to us and liberate us from our karmic entanglements, allowing us to practice the way without hindrance. May the merit and virtue of their Dharma gate fill and refresh the inexhaustible Dharma realm so that they share with us their compassion. Ancient Buddhas and ancestors were as we. We shall come to be Buddhas and ancestors, venerating Buddhas and ancestors. We are one with Buddhas and ancestors. Contemplating awakening mind, we are one with awakened mind. Compassionately admitting seven and accomplishing eight obtains advantages and lets go of advantage. Accordingly, Longya said, what in past lives was not yet complete now must be complete. In this life, save the body coming from accumulated lives. Before enlightenment, ancient Buddhas were the same as we. After enlightenment, we will be exactly as those ancient ones. Quietly studying and mastering these causes and conditions, one is fully informed by the verified Buddhas. With this kind of repentance, certainly will come the inconceivable guidance of Buddha ancestors. Confessing to Buddha with mindful heart and dignified body, the strength of this confession will eradicate the roots of wrongdoing. This is the one color of true practice, of the true mind of faith, of the true body of faith. May all awakened beings extend with true compassion their luminous mirror wisdom. With full awareness, we have chanted the Ehe Kosu Hotsugan Mon. We dedicate this merit to all original ancestor in India, great teacher Shakyamuni Buddha, our first woman ancestor, great teacher Maha Prajapati. Our first ancestor in China, great teacher Bodhidharma. Our first ancestor in Japan, great teacher Ehei Dogen. Our first ancestor in America, great teacher Shogako Shunryu. The perfect wisdom Bodhisattva Manjushri. To the well-being of all those afflicted with ills and to peace pervading for all peoples of the world. Gratefully, we offer this virtue to all beings, all Buddhas throughout space and time, all honored ones, bodhisattvas, mahasattvas, wisdom beyond wisdom, Maha Prajna Paramita.
Good evening, everyone. It's my pleasure to introduce our speaker tonight, Alex Peltz. Alex is a uh, student at the University of Chicago Divinity School. Uh, he was formerly our University of Chicago Divinity School intern at Ancient Dragons Zen Gate. Um, he's also one of the coordinators of our uh, Wednesday evening Hyde Park uh, Ancient Dragons Zen Gate group. Uh, so you can find that on our website. They meet at least starting at 6 p.m. on Wednesdays. Uh, it's been going for a long time. Um, 10 years, Nyozan? Anyway, a long time. Nyozan was our, is the founder of that group and one of the other coordinators. Uh, so um, it's a different link than the uh, Ancient Dragon Zoom uh, site, but you can find it on the Ancient Dragon Zengate uh, website, and I, uh, it's it's a little bit of a different group, but uh, a lot of University of Chicago students, but also people from that neighborhood, and uh, a very in, uh, interesting group that meets Wednesday. So Alex is one of the coordinators of that, and also um, uh, a very fine student of uh, Buddhist studies. So Alex, uh, thank you for speaking tonight. Thank you. Um you're 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 very kind in your introduction. I appreciate it. Um, hello, everyone. It's it's really wonderful to see folks tonight. It truly is my pleasure. Um, what I wanted to talk about tonight was Zen practice, obviously, um, but a little bit more specifically, Zen practice as something that is active, um, something that we do in our lives and with our lives, um, and something that actually helps us to become our truest selves, to manifest our truest self. So I'm thinking about questions like, what does it mean to practice authentically? Um, How does practice help us to become our true selves and to manifest our true self? What does it mean to practice authentically? So to start there's this quote that I wanted to share. um, And it's one that I think about a lot. It is said by the rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, who was not a Zen practitioner, um, but he was very involved in the civil rights movement. He was friends with Martin Luther King Jr. I think he was friends with Thich Nhat Hanh. I'm not positive about that. But anyway, Rabbi Heschel says, looking upon myself from the perspective of society I am an average person. Facing myself intimately, immediately, I regard myself as unique, as exceedingly precious, not to be exchanged for anything else. No one will live my life for me. No one will think my thoughts for me or dream my dreams. In the eyes of the world, I'm an average man. But to my heart, I am not an average man. To my heart, I am of great moment. The challenge I face is how to actualize the quiet eminence of my being. So the challenge I face is how to actualize the quiet eminence of my being. Now it might be a little bit funny to think about my being when we're talking about Zen because we're we're big on the whole no self thing. So I want to kind of compare this quote um, with another one, this one from Kosho Uchiyama Roshi, who is indeed a Zen practitioner. Um, And it touches on similar themes. So Uchiyama Roshi, he says in this book, Opening the Hand of Thought, um, in a chapter called Practices for Life, he says, we are always living out the reality of life. However, as soon as we start thinking and calculating about things, we become, in a sense, suspended from reality. Our practice begins to ripen only as we start to be aware that although we live in the midst of enlightenment, the little we become aware of in life is just scratching the surface. We just continue to practice, aiming to live a true way of life as best we can, neither worrying nor gauging what we are doing. So how do we get from we just continue to practice 
aiming to live a true way of life as best we can, neither worrying nor gauging what we're doing. How do we get from that idea to the challenge I face is how to actualize the quiet eminence of my being? Because they, they seem a little bit different on the surface. But, you know, these are both quotes that um, they stick in my practice. These are, these are questions that I find myself ruminating on quite often. Um, ruminating is maybe a, a, a smarter sounding way of I spend a lot of time worrying about my practice. I spend a lot of time anxious about um, my ability as a Buddhist practitioner, my capability as a Buddhist practitioner. And in my experience, um, it's typically, it's this feeling that there's more that I could be doing, right? It's like, I should be meditating more frequently, or I should be meditating longer, or I should be reading more, or I should be out doing volunteer work, or, you know, there's, there's this whole world of things that we come up with that that's what we should be doing. And, you know, if we're not doing that, um, then maybe we're not living all the way up to the potential, right? Maybe we are not, maybe we're not doing what we should be doing if we're not doing everything. And so there's this, um, there's this feeling of being inauthentic or being an imposter, right? I think it's a very common phrase nowadays, this idea of imposter syndrome, like you are the odd person out. And even if you're in a group, even if you say you're a thing, it's like, no, I'm just an imposter. I'm just pretending, right? It's, it's this imposter syndrome thing. Like I don't really belong. You know, it's this fear that my practice is not actually enough, right? That I need to be doing more to actually call it a practice. And that's really, you know, that's just the tip of a much larger iceberg um, of this kind of dynamic in the way that our brains turn, or I should say in the way my brain turns. Um, And that deeper fear is that there is some sort of um, immutable or unchanging thing about me that would make me a bad practitioner or even worse, a bad person, right? Um, and that's a, you know, that's a, that's a very kind of heavy feeling to sit with. And I think, um, I think it's a fairly common experience. Um, you know, maybe it's not with this practice, maybe it's something else in your life. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's who knows what else, but this feeling that maybe we don't actually belong because maybe we're not doing enough. Maybe we're not where we should be. And, you know, the way that it shows up for me, very frequently is, uh, you know, in my studies, um, I am currently, I'm in my last year of my master's of divinity. It's a three-year program at the university of Chicago. Um, I have been a student for my entire life up until this point. Uh, it's, I think this year was 19th grade and I'm 24. Um, and so I graduate in 2021 and I find myself faced with this, uh, this whole new dilemma that what do I do when I graduate? Um, what is it that I should do? How could I be of most benefit? What's the path that I should be taking? Um, you know, I want to do something with my life that helps people and that benefits others. Uh, and I think that I'm studying to do that, but at the same time, I also spend a good portion of my day just reading Sanskrit love poetry and the minutia of Buddhist philosophy. And I love it very, very dearly. Um, but is it the best way to help, right? Is it, is, is sitting here and figuring out what, uh, what Nagarjuna meant when he said this one thing, is that helping people as much as I could be? And I think this is, um, you know, this is really one of those very fundamental, um, sources of suffering in our lives, you know, according to Buddha. And that is this disjunction between the world that we feel and and the place that we see ourselves in the world and the world that actually exists, right? It's it's the inside versus the outside and, and the fact that those two are not the same thing, strangely enough. Right, there's the the fact that 
you know, I experience myself to be a certain person. I think I am such and such a way, but I can never know how other people experience me. Um, that's not something I can ever understand with complete certainty. Um, it's just not, not the way things work. So stepping back a little bit, back to this actualizing the eminence of my being um, and how we get there from a kind of Buddhist perspective. Probably one of the most famous lines in the Genjo Koan, one that has been repeated in this Zendo many, many times before, is that to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. So we can see that there is, in Buddhist practice, there's, there's a link between studying the self and actually forgetting the self. And if we tie that in with this other quote, then you know, we add another variable to this equation. And now somehow there's a link between studying the self, forgetting the self, and somehow manifesting an authentic self. Somehow all three of these things happen. And just a note about this word authentic, um, etymologically, uh, you know, linguistically speaking, the word authentic is a word that talks about our agency in the world. It talks about the way that we act. Um, you know, it comes from the same root as author, the first part of that auto self. So the idea of something being authentic, um, you know, literally in the Greek, it means something like self-prepared. Um, you know, there's this nominal form, this noun form of the, the word authentic. And apparently the noun authentes, it means the person who perpetrates an act. So authenticity is a word and is a, is a thing that has to do with whether we are engaging with the world in a way that accords with our own agency, right? Like this idea of authoring kind of our own fate, of authoring who we are, of authorizing who we are. And this, this kind of makes things a little bit hairy um, when we think about finding our paths, because I know in my life it would be a lot easier if someone would just tell me what to do. It would take a whole lot of weight off of my shoulders. Um, and yet, definitionally, if someone were to tell me what to do, that could not possibly be authentic because if someone just told me what to do and I followed that, that would be, that would not be following my own agency. That would be them authorizing me. Um, and just to be clear, this is not me saying you can't listen to advice from people or, or, or take advice from what people say you should do. Um, I just mean in that very strict sense of, you know, just tell me what to do. I won't ask questions. I'm going to fall. I have complete faith. I'll do it. That wouldn't, that wouldn't quite be authentic. But Dogen helps here. Again, I want to bring Dogen in again. And when he's talking about practice, um, here's what he says. This is from a quote uh, where he's conversing with a student and a student is asking him, you know, how do we, how do we judge these different Buddhist doctrines and these different practices and his response is, a Buddhist should neither argue superiority nor inferiority of doctrines, but only be mindful of authenticity or inauthenticity of practice. So the question that we need to be mindful of um, is whether this, the practice in question, um, whether our practice is something that is authentic more than being a superior doctrine or an inferior doctrine is the practice something that is authentic or is it inauthentic? And how do we, how do we do that with practice? How do we, how do we get to a place of authenticity? Again, Dogen has some good ideas in Genjo Koan. He says, here is the place. Here the way unfolds. The boundary of realization is not distinct. The boundary of realization is not distinct for the realization comes forth simultaneously with the mastery of Buddha Dharma. Do not suppose that what you realize 
becomes your knowledge and is grasped by your consciousness. Although actualized immediately, the inconceivable may not be distinctly apparent. Its appearance is beyond your knowledge. Dogen is saying uh, in this line, I think, that we as humans might not even be able to grasp the truest, deepest depths of this, this quiet eminence of being that Rabbi Heschel is talking about. And we can think about this kind of like how Suzuki Roshi talks about the big mind and the small mind. Um, you know, this idea of actualizing my authentic self, my, in the small mind sense, you know, this personal, this individual thing. But if we expand it into this big mind kind of idea and we make it something that is more inconceivable, something that is beyond our knowledge, something that is deeper than that, something that's bigger than that, we might not even be able to tell that it's being actualized. Um, there's an omnipresence to it. There's a, an, an all encompassing of it um, that we just, how could we know that it's being actualized? So it's, it's really turning this idea, actualizing the quiet eminence of my being. It really turns it on its head because what Dogen is saying is that we're always actualizing the inconceivable. Um, we all have Buddha nature. All, all things have Buddha nature. This, quiet eminence of all beings. And yet it's something that is beyond our kind of knowing mind, our grasping mind. It's not something that we can just look at and judge and say, I did this right, or I did this wrong. And this is kind of, to me, this is, you know, I've referred to this with my friends as like, this is the good news of Zen, which is that all things have Buddha nature. Um, and there's no way for you to not manifest that Buddha nature. It, it, it comes out, it leaps out. You can't really do a whole lot about it. And even though we, we might be constantly manifesting this, we're not always aware of that. Uh, and in fact, we are often not aware of that because it is the inconceivable. It is something that is beyond our minds a lot of the time. The point being that even the things that we might consider with our discriminatory mind, with our small mind, the things we might think are our worst failures or our biggest mistakes, even these things represent uh, a manifestation or an actualization of our truest selves. And the question that we face in practice is whether or not we want to face this reality authentically, whether we want to see what comes up in our practice and go with it, whether we want to really grab it by the horns. Will we fixate on our mistakes as evidence of something about us personally, something about us being too relaxed or too not committed? Or will we see these as honest manifestations of an enlightenment of a Buddha nature that is ever unfolding, that is always evolving in each new moment, that's becoming something new with our practice. A little bit further in Genjo Koan, uh, Dogen talks about the small field and the large field. When their activity is large, their field is large. When their need is small, their field is small. And he's talking about the way that practices differ. The fact that different people, different sorts of people, different cultures, different animals, they all have different practices. And it's not that one is correct or the other is incorrect, but they are responding to the conditions. They're responding to the world that they find themselves in. So here he's talking about, you know, birds can fly forever and fish can swim forever, uh, but a bird can't swim at all. A bird would die if it did that. And a fish can't fly either. 
And the point isn't that one of those is better or worse than the other. Um, that's not at all what's being said. It's just that they're different practices for different things. And we don't practice in a vacuum. We don't practice as self-contained individuals who have this complete control. Um, we practice in response to causes and conditions as they arise in our own personal life and, and on the course of our own path. And what Dogen is getting at in this line is that the things that we might see as mistakes in practice, these things are actually guideposts on our path. These things can point us. So the whole thing with the, the fish and the birds swimming and flying, they're fine when they're just doing what they're doing. Trouble only arises when they ignore their limits. Um, you know, when, when the bird tries to swim, when the fish tries to fly, that's when you're going to run into some, some difficulties. So we need to be honest in our assessment of our practice. Um, we need to be authentic about what our path is, what our position is in this whole thing, what our field is. So when the activity is large, the field is large. And when their need is small, their field is small. We're not competing with each other to have the longest practice resume. And this isn't to say I'm not telling people that if you, if you are unmotivated, if you don't want to do anything, that's just fine. That's, that's not what I'm saying. But if we get into this mindset of I need to add, I need to expand, I need to make my practice into something different. Um, that can prevent us from actually having this honest and authentic engagement through which we actually become aware of our, of our Dharma position and through which we can actually discern our path and discern what to do with our practice, what needs to happen. And there's this really lovely line. When you find your place where you are, practice occurs, actualizing the fundamental point. And that's Genjo Koan, actualizing the fundamental point. That's something that only happens when you find your place where you are, where you have this authentic engagement with the field, with your practice. And so this is, this is the heart of the practice, is actualizing this fundamental point, is engaging with the world where we are and where the world is. So there's this funny parallelism where it somehow converges. We actualize the fundamental point and we actualize our truest self through the same practice. We can only really be authentic in our practice where we're at. Um, there's no authenticity if we aren't honest with ourselves. Um, it's too easy to dwell on this. I could have, or I would have, or I should have. But ultimately if we, if we get too bogged down in these, if we get too bogged down, if we get fixated on them, they just, they become like fantasies and they become like things that we're sort of chasing after. Uh, we're spending our energies on these counterfactuals that we can't change now. We can only go forward. We can only assess the moment as it arises and go from there. So, you know, these guideposts, and these, these hypotheticals too, these things can only help us to the extent that we can integrate them with the reality of our practice. We won't get anywhere if we can't acknowledge that things happen the way they did um, and that they, they happened for certain reasons, for certain causes and conditions, and that we acted the way we did for certain causes and conditions. And when we're honest with this aspect of practice, when we're real and authentic, that's when we find our authentic place in the Buddha way. We can get actual, real, constructive sort of guidance. We need to let things experience themselves um, without adding on to them. We can let our disappointment or our frustration be disappointment or frustration, but what we shouldn't do is let it 
metastasize into something that is overwhelming to you, something that you're putting all your energy into thinking about these things and the way you, you could have done them versus the way that you actually will do them in the future. When we get kind of focused on that, it's, um, it's easy to feel like we're bad practitioners or that we fail at our practice, but that's, that's the small mind talking. Um, you know, I found in myself a lot of the times that I jump into this sort of negative self-talk critique sort of thing. And I fixate on it. That's only happening because I want my practice to do something and it's not doing something right then, but that's not the point of practice, right? We don't, we don't practice to attain. And the difficult part is in keeping the faith is in, in being committed to the fact that we will find our authentic way. We will find our Dharma position. We will find what we need to be doing. And this isn't about being easy on ourselves or letting ourselves off the hook as much as it is about actually recognizing Buddha nature, about recognizing and honoring this liberatory potential that we all have, um, right? And that's this bodhisattva ideal that as we all practice here tonight, we all share this idea that all things are enlightened, that all things can get there. Just our attempts, um, just, just our attempts to manifest this intimate self, to actualize this quiet eminence, just those attempts themselves, if they're authentic, um, if they're authentic at expressing where we're at, those are themselves, those are the actualization of that quiet eminence. Um, the action is in the action. The practice is in the practice. And so I guess I will end. I hate to end on a quote, but I really liked this one and I wanted to include it. So, so humor me. Maybe I'll, this will give fuel for our conversation. Um, but this is a really lovely quote. The view that practice and enlightenment are not one is a non-Buddhist view. In the Buddha Dharma, they are one. Inasmuch as practice is based on enlightenment, it's conditional, inasmuch as practice is based on enlightenment, the practice of a beginner is entirely that of original enlightenment. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. Um, so, uh, a lot of questions and provocative thoughts there. Um, I'm sure there are comments, responses, uh, reflections, and questions for Alex. Uh, please feel free to raise your hands and I'll call on people. Yes, thank you, Paul. Please. Thank you, Alex, for being uh, so honest with us. I, I deeply appreciate that. Um, uh, I think you illustrate something that I've observed in my 50 years of watching Buddhism grow and jump around in, in the United States and Europe, that... Um, uh, something that we have to work with that Asian, the people in a more traditional, in a more traditional bound culture don't have to, to, to work with it. That is that we have lots of options. And, and when, when we say to, to, to forget the self is to, to study the self is to forget the self. But also the next line is, is to be, to be enlightened by all things. So, in a traditional society, all things are right there. There's no question about who am I. This is all things are right there to take you into the next the next motion. You, if your father's a, a you know a, a baker, there, there's there's depending on where who you are in the family and what relationship is. There's a, there's a role for you in the world. Um, 
But we have, we're not like that. We have great freedom. We have great freedom of mind. And we, we have a lot of great difficulty with that because we can get involved in self-doubt and self-worth, thinking about our self-worth. And, and, and I have noticed over the years that depression, people that are dealing with depression have a really hard time with practice. The, practice, the Buddhist practice does not really deal with depression very well. I think that's a, a, it's, it's, a, it, it's, a, it's, a it's a lacking. It's, a, it's, a, it's somehow the Buddhist teaching does not deal with depression in a way that any way that I've come across anyway. And I've known a number of people that were very devout practitioners but suffered greatly from depression. Um, and no matter how hard they tried to practice, they couldn't escape it. Uh, sometimes to the point of dying and sometimes to the point of just going far, far away. So um, with your with your background and your study, um, I would suggest, just if I could suggest, <laughs> that that would be a wonderful thing for you to think about how to integrate the the, the, the psychology of a Western mind with the, with the Buddhist practice that way, especially in the, in the mind that says, I don't know who I am, or I don't, I don't know how to act, or I don't, I don't see any light ahead. Anyway, thank you for bringing up the subject. I think it's, I think it's a very powerful thing to think about. Thank you very much. Thank you, Zangyu. It's, it's really fascinating to consider the, the differences in culture. Um, so thank you for bringing that up. I, I had not even considered that. Other thoughts or reflections or questions or on that or anything else? Yes, Wade. Um, Alex, thank you so much for a, for a fantastic talk. Um, I was interested, I, I have a complicated relationship with the word authenticity. Um, there's, a, there's a big part of me that just absolutely despises it. Um, <laughs> Mostly, mostly because I, it's just used so uncritically um, in general. You know, like how, how many, yeah, I drive to work, well, I used to drive to work. How many authentic Mexican restaurants have I, have I, uh, and like would, would anyone in the Yucatan even recognize what was on the plate? Um, even, even if it's being cooked by, at, at actual Mexican, so not to get on Mexican food, um, but but I think the word authenticity is usually used as like a like there's always some sort of valuation behind it. You're saying that this thing is the one true thing, and this other thing is is not. Um, you know, this is something that because I used to be a gardener, it comes up in like habitat restoration. Um, like restoring an area to its authentic, you know, ecosystem. Well, like what ecosystem was, was that, um, you know, was it the one from 50 years ago, 500 years ago, you know, before humans were in the mm. Chicagoland area, um, you know, because before humans we were covered in a mile of ice, um, <laughs> <laughs> and there was, there's been no time anyway. So that's another divergence. So I think it, um, it can be a complicated word that people often treat in an uncomplicated manner. And I think it, it often makes like this truth claim, um, that encourages people not to challenge it. But having said that, I think that your treatment of it was very enlightening for me because although I, I knew I, intellectually, etymologically, where that word comes from, I think it's helpful to think of authentic practice as in the way that you described of like the practice that you author yourself, that you are the authority over um, your own your own practice that you're you're creating and authorizing um, yourself. So I, I appreciated that that application. I don't, I'm I'm babbling, but that's 
all that I have to say and, and some more. That's a, I was also babbling, so thank you. <laughs> yeah, authentic is bizarre. Authentic should not. Authentic is not the same thing as good always. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's used oftentimes synonymously. So, yeah, this is authentic, therefore it's good. It's and nice. and right because it's authentic, we don't need to decide how it became to be determined as authentic. To to put my my philosopher cap on it gets used as a sort of metaphysical category it's like Mm. this thing this thing is authentic so it's it's one type of thing versus this thing that's inauthentic so it's a different type of thing and it's bad right right yeah it's a strong truth claim Mm -hmm. yeah thank you yes ed thanks alex thanks thanks very much alex and I, i do have an answer though the, all the authentic Mexican restaurants in Chicago happen to be in Cicero, which means, for whatever reason, there are no authentic Chicago Mexican restaurants in Cicero. So it's a problem. And Tigan had a Dharma talk last Monday where he talked about categorical claims. And I think just like you were suggesting, Wade, uh, authenticity is a claim on category, which problematizes our relationship to it. Because at the end of the day, of course, any, any, any authenticity, which Alex alluded to, it would, it would be unique to one's own life, right? Mm-hmm. That authenticity. So, in the, I mean, so it's, it's unavoidably authentic when you're in pursuit of it. I, so, I mean, it almost, it almost maybe if I, if I get it at all, it almost eliminates the problem by, by, by not set, distancing oneself from the prospect of it. Maybe. I don't know. I think you got it completely. It makes makes me very happy to hear someone basically tell me back what I just said. So, Amina, did you have a comment? Yes. Um, thank you, Alex. That was a wonderful talk. Um, it resonated a lot for me because I've been thinking, authenticity is one of the things I've been thinking a lot about in the last couple of years. Um, Mostly because, and this will sound very dramatic, but I don't mean for it to sound dramatic, but I, in the last couple of years, I feel I have lost my authentic self, or I haven't, um, (laughs) I, I felt, I felt far from who I once thought I was, or, um, and it's been disorienting, so I've become very interested in the idea of authenticity because of this, like, lack and this thing I want, you know, to feel kind of to be my authentic self somehow. Um, but so, so, so I just appreciated hearing someone else talk about it and talk about it in the way you did and, and, you know, to think about it in that way. But I find the idea of authenticity kind of endlessly interesting, like a koan in itself, you know, like what it is and what it means to be authentic your, yourself or to have an authentic relationship to something or, you know, whatever and I have a very annoying cat so I'm sorry if you see me get up a lot and let my cat in and out but he's being his authentic self so as he should be can you Amina can you say more about what you think it means what authenticity means yeah for you Um, for me I mean I think what I've gotten to is that and it sounds very simple when I say it um that how I feel and how I am with other people and what I say is aligned so that, so that what's inside is, is connected to what's how I'm acting and what I'm saying, because maybe, maybe it just, maybe it's a good thing. Maybe it comes from seeing that for years I might perform a certain cheerfulness or a certain something that I'm not actually feeling. And Uh, so your feelings and expression is connected. Yeah. And, you know, what what you say, thank you for sharing, it sort of, it brings up this paradox that we run into with with when we think about being authentic to ourselves, um, which is, you know, we're not static people. We're changing every moment. We're changing every day. We're changing every year. So, you know, if you're just looking backwards and judging yourself on the you that existed yesterday, a year ago, two years ago, you're never going to be that same person. You're never going to be authentic if that's, if that's the, the meter stick that you have. 
Yes, uh, David Ray. Alex, thank you so much for that talk. It was so subtle and full of wisdom. I feel like maybe I have a particular perspective on your talk, and especially the beginning of it as a University of Chicago professor, because there is something, frankly, monstrous about the whole elite education system. And, and, and you talked about the, the imposter syndrome and, and there's, a, there's a, like a set of structural messages that are given to brilliant people that are, that, are sort of, that are impossible. It's sort of like you must conform to these standards and at the same time you must be uniquely brilliant and, and creative. And, I, you know, as, as, um, as, as Paul was saying, uh, that, that's, that's partly an American thing but, uh, you know, and partly, partly a late capitalist thing. And it was really beautiful to watch you like own that perspective. It's the perspective from which somebody says, I'm, you know, I'm no good at, like, I'm, I'm, I don't meditate well. I don't know how many times I've heard people say, well, I try to meditate, <laughs> but, I, but I don't do it very well. And I'm like, well, what? <laughs> um, but, 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 but if somebody walks in the door with that belief that I don't do X well, that's, that's precisely the thought that is going to come up in meditation. Um, anyway, just I, I, I really appreciated your 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 articulating of how how to get from that really hopeless you know place to 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 a a place where practice just gets to be practice. And and, and for a moment, I got to geek out on the etymology of the word authenticity. I just have to. So it's weird because the out the, the the aut of authenticity is actually not connected to the AUT of author. And it's also really, Wikipedia lied to me today. It did. It did. So autos just means self. But this is it's super interesting because already in old French, they thought it was from author. But author is about power, right? Mm-hmm. Author, author is about somebody that I can cite, and that means that what I said is right because it's in that author. You know, it means that. But but those those two things are really interesting, interestingly bound up together. The thought of being like under the grip of, of power or or just just being the just being the self. And so I think that's right at the heart of of what you're saying. But thank you so much for that talk. Thank you, David. I really appreciate that. I think, um, yeah, to, to complicate things a little bit further, um, you know, to, to maybe. Uh, shoot myself in the foot about this Dharma talk that I just gave. Um, You know, words are funny, words are weird and translation are even weirder. So, you know, I had this whole spiel talking about where the word authenticity comes from, but we need to keep in mind that when I'm quoting Dogen and talking about authentic or inauthentic, that's a translation. That's a translation of a Japanese word into the English word authentic. Um, Nirzan has his hand up and then Doug Hendren. Uh, yeah, thank you, Alex. I really, 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 uh, enjoyed that talk very much. Um, I just have a very simple question and that is whether you could, um, maybe read that last quote again. And I, I'm not sure you said where that was from. Maybe you didn't. I missed it. So if you could steer me in the direction of that, I'd really appreciate it. So I, I read it in this book that you loaned me. <laughs> the Agent Kim. Um, let me see. If I can find this very quickly. Um, I can't find the... Yeah, I can't find the exact one right where it is. My apologies. Um, I'll listen to the talk again. I'm sorry. It's uh, so I guess in the, in the context it is, you know, there's a student who is asking Dogen about, um, you know, which, which of these is the superior doctrine, which of these is the, the inferior doctrine. And this is the response that he gives. Um, oh, you know what? I think I might've lied about it. You wanted me to repeat the last quote. Yes. The last I, like, I know the one that you're ta- that you just referred to, but I'd like yeah. the last one. The view that practice and enlightenment are not one is a non-Buddhist view. In the Buddha Dharma, they are one. Inasmuch as practice is based on enlightenment, the practice of a beginner 
is entirely that of original enlightenment. And that's from Kim, He Jin Kim, He Jin Kim. That was cited in this He Jin Kim. That's where I found it. I think, okay. I get, did you say that sounded like Bendo Wa? I think it's from Bendo Wa. So, uh, Doug Hendren, you had a, a question, comment. Unmute. There, unmuted, finally. Um, thank you so much, Alex. It's wonderful, wonderful talk. Uh, and being the newest person, or new, um, I certainly have all that. I'm not doing this right enough, and I'm not enough, and I'm not doing enough going on. Um, but uh, I also really applaud you. And um, like Paul was saying, I. I wonder if it isn't a lot of our American kind of uh, competitiveness that you mentioned and negative self-talk that is really hard to, to get out of my sitting practice. Uh, sometimes it just kind of creeps in there and I try to breathe it away or um, I wondered if you could comment about that. And I, again, I, I really, really, feel like this is home and where I need to be. I just, I love this so much. All I've been re-listening to so many different recordings and um, really appreciate all you folks very much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Doug. We all appreciate you. And I know I definitely appreciate you being at the Thursday night groups. Um, you know, I think, uh, the main thing that I try and keep in my mind, my kind of mantra, if you will, is that my thoughts about practice are different from practice itself. Um, my sort of judgments or critiques of myself, that's a thing that I add on top of this practice that is happening no matter what. Um, so I try and just, um, you know, I want to say the, the first phrasing of it that pops into my mind is to remain faithful that it's going to work out. And I guess, you know, um, you know, I requested this, this chant that we did the Ehe Koso Hatsugan Mon because I love it so much. And, you know, and there they're talking about faith, faith that we will be the same as ancient Buddhas someday. Um, and so I just like, you know, I try to remind myself my thoughts about it are different from the thing itself. And I just need to, do it. If I sit and I meditate, you know, as long as I put the effort in authentically, if I can say honestly that I have tried, um, then that's, that's enough for just then that, you know, as long as it's, you know, the life force, the prana, as long as the prana is going into it, that's all we can do. Uh, one other question in these times, I find it, um, necessary almost to make people wrong in this competition kind of world. And I know I, I've, I've been thinking, do no harm, do no harm. But, um, could you comment on that? Yeah. I mean, we, you know, we need to remember how, There's this, uh, you know, there's a saying in the Tendai school of, you know, in each moment of thought, there are 3,000 worlds. Um, there's so much going on in every moment of just our individual experience. Now, you take that and you compound that with the seven and a half billion people in the world, and you realize that we are living in a lot of different places. There's a lot of different situations that we find ourselves in. Um, and that's not to say, you know, if it isn't obvious, this whole, this whole talk, I feel like I'm really kind of threading this needle of, of trying to, to not get too extreme on either end. Um, but I think trying to remind myself that people are all kind of on their own path, whether or not they're aware of it. Um, and to understand that, 
I think it's very easy for us to, to look at something that we don't like or that we disagree with and to immediately discount it and say, that's stupid or that's bad or that's wrong. Um, and the person for believing that or for saying that, for doing that, they are also stupid or bad or wrong. Um, but I try and have a little bit more faith in people. And I remind myself that people generally do things for reasons, right? Um, and that's not saying they're good reasons necessarily. It's not saying that I, you know, can give the cosign to someone for doing something awful because they reasoned it out to themselves. But it is kind of adding this dimension of the reality that the other person lives in, that this person lives in a reality that is just as real as mine in their experiences. And I need to contend with that in a real way. Um, I can't, you know, just, just like the authentic practice, I can't actually, if I truly am, you know, if I'm thinking about this, this viewpoint or this path that I truly do believe is actually harmful is actually, you know, something that hurts people. Um, I can't get anywhere until I actually understand how that viewpoint comes about, how somebody actually comes to have that practice or, or live in that kind of world. Well said. Thank you, Alex. Um, a good talk. Um, I was just going to add one sentence to the, Doug's question and your response about uh, judging one's own practice. And it's, it's one of my favorite sentences of Dogen, where he says, just experience the vital process on the path of going beyond Buddha. We don't necessarily understand or know what's happening in our zazen. Uh, there's a vital process going on. So our idea of, oh, that was a good period of zazen, that was a bad period of zazen, or I'm not doing it right, or I am doing it right, uh, is irrelevant. It's uh, this process that we're in. So just to say that. Excuse me. <coughs> so um, uh, let's do our closing chant. Wait, if you would lead us in the Bodhisattva Das. Sure. Give me one moment. I can put it on the screen for everyone. Beings are numberless. I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to win them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to realize it. Beings are numberless. I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to realize it. Beings are numberless. I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to realize it.